0: quoted it. You just confused them more. They're like, is this a trick? Do I have to try to figure out now what you're doing? Like, it was just one of those moments where I just wanted to go back on Facebook and make like a Kanye West public apology type thing, you know? I just wanted to be like, guys, I'm so sorry. I actually know how to read the Bible. I know that it didn't say that. Uh, So, yes. Jesus said, uh, the Bible says, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up, went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. This is one of the most... Uh, inspirational scriptures you'll hear about what friends can do to someone that's hurting or needs Jesus in their life the example here shouldn't just be rushed over some friends brought somebody to Jesus and sins are forgiven and a, a miracle happens how many of you wish you had friends like that Instead of friends that talk about you on Facebook, your frenemies, instead of friends who always borrow money uh, and pretend they forgot their wallet, which they can't really do anymore now, right? Because now at least you can say, well, you have your phone and you can Venmo me or you can Chase Quick Pay me now, you know. Well, I get paid on Thursday. Well, then why did you say you wanted to go out to Buffalo Wild Wings and have dinner with me tonight, right? But how many want friends that help bring you to Jesus to experience miracles? This is an inspirational story then for you. Don't get discouraged to overcome obstacles to bring your friend to Jesus because in another gospel, it says when they came to Jesus, there was such a great crowd, they couldn't get to him, so they got some ingenuity. They climbed up on the, the thatch roof or the kind of mud roofs they had at that time and tore it apart and lowered down their friend. That is awesome. That's the kind of friends we need in life. The Bible says he sees their faith. Would you screw up a little bit, please, so they can see it? They had faith faith, Jesus sees the faith. Jesus pays attention to your faith. Not all prayers are the same. I know that you want to be told that just pray and it will go away, but that's not necessarily true. There are some things that will not go away when you pray unless you have faith. God is not answering the pitiful. God is answering the faithful. I know some of us want to think that's God not being fair, but God designed a world to function on his principles, and if you don't do it according to his principles, you don't get his results. So I know some people that struggle with obesity, and they're great prayer warriors. Man, they love Jesus, but here's the thing. No matter how much they pray for their health, they are working against the principle that God set up for good health. So if they had faith in their prayers for health, what does God want to see? The actions that come from that faith, from that belief system. And so once again, these men didn't just say, well, Jesus is going to heal them. Jesus is going to pass on by. We'll just wait for Jesus. No, their faith had action. And I don't just mean to pick on people who have had trouble with weight. I've had trouble with weight. I could use it with anything in life. If at any time your prayers are going against your actions, the faith that you have is being ineffective effective faith that gets the answer to that which it's praying for is the kind of faith that's willing to be obedient to what God has commanded. And so he sees their faith. And now watch this. Jesus gives us a little peekaboo. Everybody go peekaboo. Jesus gives us a -a peekaboo of his divinity because he throws them off. What's Jesus supposed to do after he sees their faith? He's supposed to say, boom, you're healed. Get up and go. But now he changes the script. He goes, Your sins are forgiven. That right there blows the mind of every Jewish person listening to him. Because, hey, dude, if you didn't know, only God can forgive sins. And that's our problem with the Roman Catholic Church. Love Roman Catholics hate Roman Catholicism. Everybody got that right? So don't email Facebook and say he hates Roman. No, love Roman Catholics, hate Roman Catholicism. Why? Because it teaches that men can absolve you of your sins. That's a big no-no in the Bible. All that we can do as leaders is hear what you've done with God and then say, yeah, that sounds like you're forgiven. So, for example, if I was meeting with somebody in counseling and they were coming to me maybe guilty for some things they've done in life, and then I ask them, I say, but have you repented to God? Have you confessed your sins? And they go, oh, man, I did that. And I would maybe ask them, did you do it sincerely? Oh, yes. Are you in your heart desiring to turn away and never go towards that sin? Yes. I can look at them and go, man, your heart is right with God. You've, You've obeyed the word. You can have a clear conscience. But I just can't walk up to some random dude and be like, hey. Your sins are forgiven. That's literally what Jesus is doing. Even in the Old Testament, if a priest was going to pronounce forgiveness, it was after they did the sacrifice, it was after they performed these things. And then the priest goes, Yep, checked off this, checked off this, you're forgiven. Jesus is skipping the whole process here, looking right at a dude going, You're forgiven. And most people who are kind of smart reading the Bible are like, He didn't even ask. How is he being forgiven? Well, as we're about ready to find out, Jesus reads thoughts. Here's what I think happened. The men had faith for this man to be healed, but the man had faith to not only be healed, but to be saved. And so the Bible says when he saw their faith, that's all of their faith, faith for healing and the man's faith to be saved. And aren't you happy God knows your heart? Amen. And so when he said, your sins are forgiven, the Jewish people think he's blaspheming. Uh, And so sometimes we think blasphemy is just taking the name of the Lord in vain, but their laws of blasphemy went much further than that. It was also acting with the prerogative as if you were God. So it wasn't just, you take his name in vain, you're blaspheming. It's if you walk around and you act like you're God, you're also blaspheming. And so Jesus is walking around acting like he's God. Now, to show them that he is God in the flesh, that's why this is a peekaboo of Jesus' divinity, he says, hey, I know y'all are thinking these things, but let me ask you, what's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But that you might know, the son of man, remember that phrase, everybody say son of man, son of man, thank you, has authority to do both. Get up and walk. And please follow with me in the scriptures, please. So that you can know he has authority to do both, get up and walk. And so what did Jesus prove by the man getting up and walked when it came to the sins? What did he prove? The man's sins were what? Forgiven. That he wasn't just spouting out nonsense. He was actually speaking the truth. Go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. How many remember Daniel in the lion's den? You remember that? Did you know that Daniel had prophecies about Jesus? Some of you were here for that time, you remember? Okay, great. Look at Daniel chapter 7, and look at what the Bible says Daniel saw in a vision, starting in verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. What was he like? A son of what? Son of man, isn't that interesting? Coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Catch this. Hundreds of years before Jesus is ever born in a manger, Daniel says, I see somebody, looks like a man, but is getting worshiped like God. Let that sink in. Is Jesus a normal man becoming God or is he God who became man? He's God becoming man. Why did Jesus have to be born of a virgin? I even ask other religions this, like Muslims who say, Oh, we believe in Jesus as a prophet and we believe he had a virgin birth. And I ask them, Why in your religion did Jesus have to have a virgin birth? Amen. And they always tell me, I don't, know. I don't know. It just says that. I say, You want to know where the story's found? It's found in our book. And it says, Emmanuel, God, if he was coming in the flesh, he needed it perfect. You see, Jesus was the second Adam in the sense of resetting the human race. Jesus always existed with the Father, had all authority, had all the worship, knew everything. Why does he come in the flesh? He comes to be like us, a son of man, to get what man had lost. And in doing that, he is glorified as the God-man and now forever worship. Let's go to the end of Matthew because it's okay to read the end of the book sometimes. Does anybody here ever do that for your assignments? You're asked to read a book, you start at the end? I told you last time, a professor told me he actually does that. I'm like, oh, you know, now I know you, you, know, you can do it. I can get away with it. But still for me, I'm like, I'm going to wait till I get there to find out. Look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. In Daniel, it says, I saw one that looked like the Son of Man, and he had all this authority. Look at what Jesus said. When he came to them, he said, all authority... In heaven and on earth has been what? Given to me. So, what happened between the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Exactly what Daniel saw. The Son of Man came to His Father, the Ancient of Days, and now on behalf of mankind, He is given all this authority. Why did He need it? Because somebody might say, well, if He's God, why does He need authority? He already had it. And if He's God, why does He get tired? And if He's God, how can He die? How can God die? They misunderstand the purpose of the incarnation. First of all, when you die, you don't stop existing. Your body just dies. Your spirit and soul goes on. When Jesus Jesus' body died. The Spirit of God, the Son of God did not die. He continually existed. But what was the significance of a death of a perfect human? Redemption for mankind so that the kingdom of God could now come. What are we celebrating during Easter? We're celebrating the second Adam, Jesus Christ, our perfect sacrifice, restarting human history. So now when this body dies, we can have a resurrection like Christ. Because remember, being a disembodied spirit going to heaven is only a temporary fix because our bodies now have to die because of sin. Where did God place humanity in the beginning? On earth. Where are we going to rule and reign with Christ? On earth. Are we going to exist as disembodied spirits in heaven forever? No, we get resurrected bodies. Why? Because Jesus paid the price for our sins. Go back now to Daniel. When Daniel saw this in the Old Testament, he's even the one seeing the vision. Go to Daniel 7, 15. It's the very next verse after he saw the vision. He says, I, Daniel, was troubled in my spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. Why was Daniel disturbed? Because he saw someone that looked like him getting worship and having the same glory of God. And God speaks continually throughout the Old Testament you don't have any other gods besides me and i don't share my glory with anybody else and don't worship anything else so what do we say to the jehovah witness They point to us in the Bible and say, show us the trinity. That came from the council of Nicaea. We show them that the triune God has been in the scriptures from beginning to end. He said, let us make man in our image who is there, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. When we get to the visitor that comes to Abraham, the Bible says in one place, no one has ever seen God, but in Genesis 18, Yahweh, God, comes to meet with man face to face with two Angels that then go on to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And here we see in Daniel's vision as well as Isaiah's vision, he said, I saw him high and lifted up, but someone else said, I'd never seen God. And and the prophet said, If you see God, you die. You can't even live. And yet Jesus comes, and then John says, The one Isaiah saw was Jesus. Isn't that something that the Bible doesn't contradict itself? That's why the modern Jewish people, going to our notes, please, in Matthew, are just like the ancient Jewish people. They don't get it. How can someone that looks like us, who we don't die when we see, be God and give forgiveness? It is God the Son, not the Father. The Father did not become flesh. The Holy Spirit did not become flesh. It's the Son of God in the flesh, doing what only God can do. And he shows these Jewish people, he's not blaspheming. He is who he said he is. And how many know? The religious can miss it, but the others, the crowd, the average Joes can get it. Do you want to be like an average Joe, the crowd? Because when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. How did man get such authority? Because the God-man is now with us. Remember after Jesus calmed the storms in the chapter before? They said, what kind of man is this? Do you see how Matthew, the author here, is building it up towards the crescendo of the resurrection and everything that Jesus is going to do for humanity? He's giving you these peaks into Jesus' nature so that you understand he's not just a prophet doing some good things. He's Emmanuel, God with us, in the flesh, doing what only God can do. Let's go now to the next section. Matthew becomes a disciple. In chapter 9 of verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he said to him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him. And his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. And he quotes from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 in the Old Testament. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then Jesus says, for I have not come to call the righteous, but who? I have not come to call the righteous, but who? Sinners. Thank you. Now, are the Jewish people getting in line following Jesus? No, they're doing the exact opposite. They're finding reasons to be upset with him and persecute him. And now what they're going to pick on him over is that he actually cares about sinners and those who are not doing all they're doing. They were the kinds of people Jesus was rebuking in Matthew five. That says judge, uh, Matthew seven. That says, "Judge not, lest you be judged." You remember that passage? They were the hypocrites. It's not that they were making godly judgments, and God said, "Stop trying to teach people to live holy." No, the judgments they were making were judgments based on appearances, judgments based on the outside, not the inside. And so what we see here is Jesus takes his rightful place as judge, and he tells them, you don't understand the purpose of the Messiah. And the Messiah was who they were waiting for this whole time. And so literally everything's going over their head. And he stops and he says, hey, let me make this clear to you. I'm a doctor, and I'm coming to help sick people. Tax collectors, the ones you don't like, they're sick. Guess what? Dr. Jesus is here. Sinners who aren't following all the laws like you, guess what? Dr. Jesus is here. And then he gives them this scripture that had been given to their forefathers, and their forefathers blew it. And now they're blowing it the same way. You see, towards the end of the Old Testament, God gave the Jewish people 400 years of silence because he was so upset that they continually looked to their religion as their right place with God instead of mercy and grace. And God told them over and over and over again, I gave you these things as an example, but you just keep using them as your religion to get into a relationship with me. And I'm trying to tell you, I don't care about animal sacrifice anymore. I don't care about all of the things you think I care about. This was just a tutor. Because they were saying, oh, we're so direct in the law, we tithe off of this, we do this, we do that. And the Bible says it's not that the law was bad, it was just how they were using it. It would be like me coming to my wife going, tell me exactly what you want me to do to love you, nothing more, and that's all I'll ever do. That's what they were doing. And then even at that, they didn't do it with all their heart. They were sinning on the side because they thought if they did this good enough, they can make up for these sins. And here Jesus is speaking clearly to them. Hey, you know what I'm really about? I'm about mercy. Now notice how he takes the Father's words and put it in his own mouth. That's another sign of Jesus' divinity. He always talks as if him and the Father are one. That's going to come out later. But then he gives us this heavy revvy that we all need to understand. It's not the righteous that get saved. It's always the sinners. So that's where I tell you, if you can't sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me, you can't get saved. Now, some people may say, you know what, Pastor? I'm not as bad as others. So that's why I always like to give people the good person test. You all want to take the good person test? You guys ready? How many know what it is? You've been here for a while. Watch. Let's take the good person test. On average, how many times have you taken something that doesn't belong to you in your life? Just think about it. On average, how many times have you told a lie? On average, how many times have you coveted what someone else had? On average, how many times have you disobeyed your parents, young people? On average, how many times have how many times have you taken the name of the Lord in vain? And one more on average, how many times have you lusted in your heart? Let's just say 5 per day. <laughs> of all of those, Five per day, 365 days a year. That's 1,825 times you've broken those commands. How good are you now? How many sins did Adam and Eve commit to get kicked out of the garden and literally bring hell on earth? One. Was it the sin of child molesting? Was it the sin of smoking crack? It was the sin of disobedience. How many do you commit on average a year 1,825. How many years will you probably live to be? 80. When do you have a good sense of right and wrong? 13. Let's times it by 67. You will face God on judgment day with 122,275 sins. Did you pass or fail the good person test? Let me remind you to pass is to have zero. Zero. Some people like to compare themselves to Hitler and go, I'm not as bad as Hitler. Hitler is not the cookie cut you're getting compared to. It's Jesus. That's the one you're getting compared to. Sure, you look good to Hitler, but Jesus is the standard perfection. So what does it teach us? What is Jesus teaching us in this, in this phrase here? I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinner. He's telling us, I didn't come to call those who are self-righteous and don't think they need me. Like you guys. And he's pointing to them. And then he points to Matthew and he says, but I've come to save sinners like them. So we ought to be careful here in this church that we don't find ourselves on the wrong side of Jesus' rebuke. Because oftentimes when I go preach the gospel on the streets, and by the way, I go to the streets to stay sharp because you guys always come here and put on church faces. I like to go out there where they don't hide their feelings from me. And they'll tell me how they really think about God in the Bible. When you talk to them, they'll say, oh, I'm good, I'm good. Because they don't understand how sinful they really are without Christ. And if we're not careful, we can become that same way. And so what I love about Matthew becoming a disciple is that it shows us Jesus cares about people that even others don't think deserve it. So what was the tax collector simply was someone who worked with the oppressors of that day not in an uncle tom way not in a bad way not in a way to 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 uh, excuse me not in a good way not a, excuse me it was like an uncle tom way excuse me not in a way that was helpful to the oppressor but bad does everybody understand what I'm talking about? He used his power and authority to get his own personal gain. Instead of using his position and authority to help the oppressed, he used it to put down the oppressed. So imagine in a time of African-American slavery, imagine uh, you having the role of, a, of an African-American over your own people, and yet you whip them harder than the, Rome, uh, than the slave master does. That's why they hated him. So you might say, well, I don't know. I kind of like what they're saying about him now. But here's the thing. Jesus is not justifying his actions as a tax collector because how did they do it? See, Rome said, we charge you 10% for the taxes. We charge you 10%. But the tax collector would say, but I want you to give me 12%. And here the person's going, man, I can't even afford 10%, let alone 12%. Do you see how bad they were? Do you get that? And Jesus is saying, I'm saving that guy. But what did Jesus see in Matthew? What did Jesus see in the traitor here? What did he see? That the heart of repentance was there. That he was wanting to be forgiven. And so you may look at people and say, they are doing the most wicked things. But let me ask you something. Are you willing to sit down and eat with them and offer them Jesus? So let's say to all you guys who don't like Trump supporters, are you willing to sit down with somebody wearing a MAGA hat and give them Jesus? It gets quiet when you preach like that. You willing to do that? And all of you MAGA supporters here in this church, because we definitely have them, are you willing to sit down with people who are socialists or like Bernie Sanders or like Cortez and sit down with them? In other words, are you willing to stop judging people by the outside and start looking towards the inside? Because there's maybe somebody there that has been working with the oppressor or has been doing things wrong that says, I want a way out now. I know I'm sick, but is there a doctor in the house? And remember, we read the stories of Jesus putting ourselves in Jesus' place. So how can we be Jesus to the world? We can go to where people are sick and bring them the gospel message. Amen. Amen. Let's go on now to the next section here, and I think we'll stop here today. Come back for Easter. We'll talk about Jesus, obviously, for Easter. Wouldn't that be awesome? Talk about Jesus on Easter. And then after Easter, we'll go back to chapter 9. But let's end with these, uh, these questions that come to him. Verse 14, then John's disciple came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Remember that. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast or mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the wineskins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. Everybody go, oh, don't waste the wine, dude. It's okay to laugh in church every now and then. Now, uh, excuse me, no, they pour new wine into what? New wineskins, and both are preserved. How many want to save the wine? You don't want to waste wine, right? Now, this is a great scripture to show people that they definitely drank fermented wine because the whole entire parable or the metaphor God is giving here is based upon fermentation, I'll get to the question in just a second, but let me get to the end of what he's trying to describe here to us. The ancient practice of making wine was to trot it on grapes until the juice came out, grape juice, and then to put it into wineskins, most of the time made out of animal skin, and then let the fermentation take place. As the gases expand, the wineskin expands. But if you use an old wineskin with new wine, what's going to happen when that expansion happens? The old wineskin is going to break under the expansion pressure the pressure of the gases. And so Jesus is talking to some people who like some fine wine, and he's like, Y'all know you don't want to waste that wine, right? You don't want to waste it. So you get out that new wineskin. What Jesus is saying is, I'm bringing the new wineskin. Okay, we'll get to that in just a minute, but let me give you another example. Real simple, I don't sew, but it makes sense to me. Is that if you take a new piece of cloth and you patch something that's old with it, the new piece, if it's not pre-shrunk, is going to start shrinking, and as it does, it's going to pull the old cloth even more and make the tear worse. How many get Jesus' two examples there? Okay, great. Let's go back to the question now. The question comes. Can you please scroll uh, to the question there? Thank you. Notice who asked the question. Who asked the question? Who are they called? John's who? John's disciples. John's disciples. See, John was a good guy, wasn't he? And the Jews that followed John were awesome Jews. They were the kind of Jews that were doing it right. They're fasting, but they're doing it for the right reasons. They're going to the temple for the right reasons. They're preaching the truth of the gospel for the right reasons. So I don't want you to get in your mind that nobody was living for Jesus at this time, there's John disciples. Now, what's the question they ask? Why are the Pharisees fasting? And probably they're saying, as us, we're fasting, and your disciples don't fast. Basically, it's like, Jesus, why are you eating and drinking and partying all the time? Because when John came, they accused him of being a party pooper. John wore weird clothes, had his breast stanked from eating locusts all the time, and hung out in the wilderness. Jesus came eating and drinking with sinners and what they call him, a wine-bibber, a drunkard, and a friend of sinners, right? So they're like, Jesus, why are we and the Pharisees fasting all the time, but you're just partying it up with all these, you know, these tax collectors and sinners? Jesus now explains this to them. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is still with him, with them? there will come a time when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will fast. So let's understand what fasting was. It was a way for you to to break your heart before God, to suffer in your flesh and to say, God, I need you and I'm sorry for my sin. Examples of fasting in the Bible is like when Jonah preached in Nineveh, they fasted for three days. In Yom Kippur, is a part of the law, they would fast once a year. Uh, Daniel, when he wanted to hear from God when he was in Babylon and his whole world was falling apart, and that's when he got the vision, by the way, but he fasted because he's like, I need to know what's going on in the big plan here? But guess what Jesus says? Why do they need to fast if I'm right here? So you can almost think like Peter is about ready to tear his garment, take the ash and start fasting and go, God, where are you? And Jesus is going to go, hey, Peter, I'm right here. I'm right here. Hey, hey, you don't have to do all that. Now watch this. He then gives the example that that's what it's like in the kingdom when you try to put old with the new. It doesn't make sense. But what does make sense is being new. Now, here's two ways to look at this. I'm going to ask you guys as potential Bible theologians, two ways to look at this. When he says, when the bridegroom is taken away, they'll go to fasting again, does that mean that fasting will continue after Jesus goes to heaven and until his second coming, he's away from us, so we go back into the practice of fasting? Or, as some think, is it that they will fast after he's taken away during the death and burial, but when he actually comes back at the resurrection, he'll be with them forever. So now they have that new relationship. The first one or the second one? Which one do you think I believe? Do you think I believe that we're going to fast continuously as the Old Testament commands so that we can be close to God? If you think I believe that, raise your hand. You guys are smart. Maybe somebody's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. How many? How many think I believe that fasting has been fulfilled in Christ? And we have a new relationship with a new wine. And we're partying with the Holy Ghost. Well, let me just show it to you. Go to Matthew twenty-eight twenty. We'll end very quickly here. Thank you for your patience. I just want you to see this clearly. It's not that fasting is bad. Is Sabbath bad? No, nothing is bad about these things. Can you keep a Jewish diet if you want? Absolutely, you can do a lot of things that the Jewish people did as often as you want. And some people may say, "Well, I see in the New Testament in the Book of Acts there's still some of these things going on." Yes. They're still fasting. They're still going to the temple. They're still celebrating feast days. But listen to when they meet in the Jerusalem council and are very clear doctrinally about what the gospel is in the new covenant. They're like, it doesn't have anything to do with that. We're going to the temple to respect and honor God, the tradition, and win the Jews to the Lord. We're keeping the dietary law because that's what we have done our whole life. But God even used that as an example with Peter and said, hey, kill and eat whatever you see. That lechon is for you, baby. And then he goes and preaches to the Gentiles in Cornelius' house. So, so the example is the Old Testament was always preparing us for the New Testament. The way I like to look at it is imagine a runner, you know, doing, uh, doing the relay race. And here comes the baton from the one to the other. There's a transitional period between the one runner and the other runner. When Jesus is on earth, there's that transition taking place. And the disciples of John are asking, what is actually going to get transferred into this new covenant you're initiating? And Jesus is explaining the new covenant is going to be like new wine and new wineskins, guys. So get ready and it's going to be awesome because the bridegroom is going to be with you everywhere you go. Look at the passage. We've already been there. into the book, remember, Matthew's building up to points here. They get resolved at the end of the story. He says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So did he ever leave permanently? No, the idea of him going to heaven is to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is now with us and where two or three are gathered together, there he is, he's in our midst. And so we're not looking back at the old covenant as ways to try to get closer to God. We're looking at the old covenant as examples to how we're now close to God. So what's the temple? The temple starts with Jesus. The new human race starts in Jesus. He said, destroy it in three days, I'll rebuild it. But this is what he was talking about, his body. Remember that? Because Jesus' body became the temple of the Holy Spirit, now our bodies become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus becomes a high priest, now we are a priesthood in Jesus. Are you guys with me here? Because Jesus became our one-time sacrifice, now we offer up our sacrifice as our bodies, as a living sacrifice. Do you get it? Everything in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ, and then when we plug into Christ, we live it out in the new covenant. And so if you go back to the notes, I want to close with this as Adam comes, please. And I thank you for your patience today. And just remember, only halfway through, so uh, if you think I went too long, I can go a lot longer. Okay, I'll show you what long is like. Okay, let's look at this. Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. Who is his bride? The church. That's us. And the Bible says he's only taken away for a time. But at the resurrection, he's brought back. So how did they fast when he was taken away? The fasting of three days. God, where are you? Where are you? We don't know where you are. Do you get it? What happened? What? I'm fasting. I'm not eating. I'm sick to my stomach. I can't eat. You can hear Mary. I can't even eat. I can't. You should eat something, Mary. I can't even eat. Right? Come on, somebody. But then he comes. He resurrects, Easter Sunday, boom. And he says, I am with you now, and this is the way I want you to look at it, as a new wineskin. What is the greatest epistle, in my opinion, to see the new wineskin? Ephesians the one that we've already been through verse by verse. Go back and check it out. We titled that whole sermon series In Him because it said over 20 times, we are in Christ, we are in Him. Christ is in us. We are this close and closer to Jesus. So we're not trying to strive to go to where Jesus is. I don't have to skip food for Him to come to be with me. All I have to do is accept Him into my heart, become a new wineskin. And go, 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 go. He'll give me as much as I want And the Bible then says don't get drunk off wine Because you can have too much of that But be filled with the Holy Spirit So some of you say Man pastor I don't ever want to drink wine or alcohol Great that's, that's okay you can do that There's a, The Bible says not everybody has to do everything Some people can be vegetarians And you can be weird and we'll look at you Especially the vegans we'll be like what's wrong with you But you can be weird you can do that Okay but here's the deal what you can't do is walk around as an old wineskin, though. You can be a Jew that still keeps the dietary law, but you better be the new wineskin of God because the dietary law will never give you the wine of God. If you today want to make extra rules for yourself, that's fine. I have a ton of extra rules that will probably freak you out. Some of you know my extra rules, and you're like, Joe, you're weird, and I know I'm weird. I haven't drinking caffeine in over 20 years. That's a rule for me. God told me to do that. Could you imagine me on caffeine? This is me decaffeinated. Okay, so just be happy today. I don't drink whatever you're drinking, Red Bull. I'll be like bouncing all over the place. You know what else? You know, I don't celebrate Christmas. It's just not for me. I don't like the I don't like it. This is not for me. I won't get into it. But I have a lot of little things that God has told me over the years that that lets, you know, lets me remember what it's all about in life for me, helps me stay focused. But if I ever look to those things and be like, I'm so pious because I don't drink caffeine and I didn't listen to non-Christian music for almost 18 years and I didn't see a non-Christian movie for almost 15 years. You know, if I if I fasted three days a week for uh, almost two years, gave myself heat exhaustion, a heat, mini heat stroke in the middle of an outreach in New Orleans over 100 degrees weathers and I'm putting up a, a, a tent fasting and not drinking I mean, okay if I ever look to that and go that's my righteousness God says dude, it's like trying to pour new wine and old skins. it's just going to splatter everywhere and be a mess don't try to earn your righteousness in this thing whatever you now do for God whatever you give up for the Lord don't look at it like you've earned something here God says, yes, he'll bless and reward you for the things he's told you to do, but don't look at it like somehow you're patching this thing up. The Christian life is not a patch job. The Christian life is not just taking some of the old and mixing it with the new. It is God starting with us brand new and then giving us something that is the most exquisite, tasteful, most beautiful life we could ever imagine. And so the way I like to look at it it's when I go to be with Jesus in heaven. He's going to say, Father, look what I have for you. And the Father's going to take a taste of my life. And he's going to go, oh, 1995 Chardonnay. And I'm going to go, yes, that's what—that's when I gave my heart to your son, Jesus, uh, Father. He's going, oh, I love what my son did in your life. You have aged well, Joe. You have, you have become the best Chardonnay. No, I'm kidding. But you see, when God brings you before his throne, the wine of our life, should taste well to him. It should be aged. It should be matured. should be full-bodied. It should come with not a bad aftertaste, <laughs> a little bit sweet. Some of you like the darker reds that are like really super bitter, but I'm just gonna use like the fruit, sweet wine here. Are you listening? Like a sangria for the Lord. And God is gonna say to us, God is gonna say to us, well done good and faithful servant and then are we going to look back at the father and be like well that's what I did I'm so amazing at this no we're going to go right to Jesus and go my winemaker he was the he was the vine I was the branch come on he was he was the one in charge that that I accepted because we know the father will love to see us give glory to Jesus who did that work in our life can we just pray as the band and altar workers come just at your seats before you go Father, we thank you today for your grace and your mercy. We pray that we will be new wineskins filled with wine. We pray we'll be new garments, not patched together garments. We pray, Lord, that if there's anything in our life that doesn't belong, you'll remove it now in the name of Jesus. Just as we pray, if you need to accept Christ into your heart to become a new wineskin for the wine to come, would you ask the Lord to change you, to save you? Ask the Lord to make you a new person. Say, forgive me of my sins, Father. I ask Jesus to be the Lord of my life. Just pray like that. Jesus will come and change you and rearrange you. If you're here today and you would say, Pastor, I know Jesus. Well, let me ask you a question. How's the wine? How is the new you doing? Are you aging well? Or are some things coming into that wineskin? Are you going back to the old? Are you cracking and breaking a little bit under the pressure? Because you won't let the new ways harness the new wine what does that look like that looks like stinking thinking get rid of it just say lord forgive me i I don't want to think this way how about some of the behaviors and patterns we all know these ways that god wants to change us in repent of them now man come on don't hold on to it it's not worth losing this wine over it's not worth it few more moments, we'll dismiss, but if you need prayer, as we stand right now, would you come forward, and the rest of us, would you just stand and raise your hands to heaven and say, Lord, fill me with your new wine. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. The Bible says that when he comes, he comes like wind, fire, water, all of those things, and he also says it's like the wine of heaven. Hallelujah. Remember when the good Samaritan took care of the man? He poured out the oil and the wine. Some of you need that as a part of your healing. You need to be refreshed a few moments if you need prayer as the band starts to sing. You can sing with them at your seat. But if you need prayer to come to Christ or to have some of your wineskin made new today or all of it for that matter, come on up. Because you don't have to leave out here the same way you came. You can be the new wineskin.